First John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Give ear to the word of God. John writes, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he was, has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The sense of the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Well, you've probably heard the old saying, uh, there are two kinds of people in this world. Uh, sometimes we use it for humor and effect. Uh, there's, there's a movie where somebody says, uh, there's two kinds of people in this world, those who like Neil Diamond and those who don't. Uh, you know, we, we sometimes say there's two kinds of people. You know, sometimes people, some people play Christmas music before Thanksgiving and some do not, uh, that kind of a thing. Um, well, you could say that in a more serious way that that's, that's kind of a summary of what John is saying to us in these, in these verses. That's a summary message of John's text here in John, 1 John 3. John paints uh, a somewhat blunt and vivid contrast between the children of God and the children of the devil. And he brings this to a point in the last verse of our text, verse 10, where he says this, By this it is evident or apparent who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever, do, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his, his brother. Um, in a lot of ways, this runs contrary to the way that many people, even many professing Christians within the visible church, think. First, the first thing John does really is, is kind of refute, really clearly refute, the all too commonly held falsehood that all people are God's children. Maybe you've heard people say things like this before. It's a very common uh, thing for people to say and to, to think and to believe, but it's also very wrong and very un, uh, unbiblical. It's just not true. You will search the scriptures in vain for any support for such an idea. God is everyone's creator. God is not everyone's father. Everything that John says in this entire epistle, and especially what he says here in our text in chapter 3, flatly contradicts and refutes that idea. If all, if all people are God's children, 1 John 3 makes no sense, especially our passage this morning. John tells us in no uncertain terms, you are either a child of God or you are a child of the devil. There's no, no in-between. There's no third option. There's no neutral spiritual ground. There's no spiritual Switzerland or any such thing as that. Uh, our text this morning invites us, at least implicitly, to examine ourselves, doesn't it? And to ask ourselves whose child we are. And what does John do? He thankfully gives us a test of sorts by which we are to come to the right conclusion as to whether we are a child of God or a child of the devil. 
Now, John's language in the original Greek of, of this passage is very, very blunt, so much so that some of our better translations uh, render parts of it with additional nuance in order to avoid misunderstandings, and that is understandable. Uh, the King James, if you're looking at the King James version of this, uh, it, it is rather blunt. It kind of preserves that bluntness, which is very good, but it does need some nuance in, in our interpretation of it to make sure that we don't misunderstand it in, in some ways. Um, that's, that's all fine and good to have the nuance added to it and such, but we have to make sure that we don't allow that nuance to blunt or water down the clear truth that John is presenting us with here for our own good. Some, sometimes a little bluntness can be a good thing. We are, I think our culture in many ways is lacking uh, the clarity and bluntness that uh, former generations may have been accustomed to, and sometimes we could use a little bit more of that and not, uh, not even uh, when it comes to things in the church, I think it's even more necessary in some cases. Well, I have to admit it's difficult to know how to outline a text like this, you know, reading commentaries and things, which I do when I'm preparing to preach. Um, if you were to look at the stack I have and, and examine each one and how they handle the text, they're all different. Uh, some, some break this down into two or three or four different sermons, and they pick it, they kind of, pick and choose, uh, you know, they kind of jump around the text. They'll say verse, I'm just throwing numbers around, verses 4 and 5 and 7, verses 5 and 6 and 9. Like they kind of just mix and match. There's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, so uh, what I'll try to do this morning is just keep it as simple as possible uh, for our benefit. And the, the first thing that John would have us to rightly understand, uh, I think it's clear throughout the text, is we are to understand the, the relationship of the children of God to the practice of sin. What is the relationship of the children of God, those who believe in Christ unto salvation, and the practice, the ongoing practice and habit of sin? Look again at verses 4 through 7. John says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared, that's Christ, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him, that's Christ, or known him. And then he adds, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous even as he is righteous. Now John, when he says, little children, let no one deceive you, uh, if you've been here through most of this study in First John, you'll know that this is not a hypothetical situation to him. Uh, there were what we call, you know, maybe the, we might think of them as the early Gnostics, these false teachers, these heretics that preached a false gospel and preached false doctrine that led to many, in many cases, to an actual practice of sin. Uh, John has really got them in the crosshairs here. He's saying, little children, don't let these people deceive you. Don't let anyone deceive you. But in this particular case, uh, that is who we had in mind here. Notice the first thing John would have us clearly understand here is a right view of sin. Sometimes we struggle with sin because we don't have a right view of God or a right view of sin. And he wants us to have a right view of the practice of sin. He tells us that to live in such a way as that, to practice sin, to live in sin, is to practice what? What does he call it? Lawlessness. <coughs> Lawlessness, And then he says again, not only that, sin itself, by its very nature, is lawlessness. We might, 
you know, we, we often tend in our day to downplay uh, the true nature of sin. You know, we, we tend to kind of uh, rationalize our own sins. You know, we kind of poo-poo uh, sins and, and think of our sins as, as little. Uh, John, John has none of that here, does he? John basically tells us sin by its very nature is not the occasional slip. It's not some little thing. It's rebellion against God. Sin in its very nature is rebellion against God and his law. Seen in that light, seen, seen correctly in that light, how can we possibly imagine that one who practices sin, that one who is in rebellion, continued rebellion against God, is a child of God? That is what John is saying here in our text. Now, when John says that someone is making a practice of sinning or that someone keeps on sinning, He's not talking about the utter absence of any and all sin in the life of a believer. He's not, he's not teaching a kind of perfectionism. He is not telling us that, that the standard for the Christian life in this life is sinless perfection. And if you don't attain that standard, you are not a child of God. You're still a child of the devil. That is not what John is saying. And why do I say that? It should be very clear if you keep, you know, we pastors often say things like, this verse has to be understood or this passage has to be understood in its context. And maybe you get tired of hearing that because it just seems so redundant at times. But it's, it's a true thing. There's a reason we say things like that. And what is the context of 1 John chapter 3? 1 John, the whole book, but 1 John chapter 1. And way back in 1 John 1, 8 through 10, uh, John's held, John told us something that kind of lays the foundation for the rest of what he goes on to say in this epistle, including what he says in our text, 1 John 1, 8 through 10, John says this. He says, if we, he's talking about Christians here, if we say we have no sin, we do what? We deceive ourselves. We're not fooling God. Uh, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. And then he says, if we confess our sins... He, that is God, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So John, John clearly is not saying that Christians don't sin. In fact, he says just the opposite, doesn't he? He has some pretty strong words for people that might call themselves Christians but say, there's no sin in me, and I haven't sinned. And that's what these false teachers were teaching people to believe. They basically undid the category of sin altogether, that whatever you do with your body, according to the Gnostics, didn't matter. And so how could you consider it a sin? It doesn't matter. God's going to do away with your body. They would say so. It doesn't matter how you live. John says, no, no, no. You can't say that you have no sin in you, even as a believer. And if, if we have any conscience at all, we know that's the case. We know we have sin in us. And he says, if you say you have no sin in you, you deceive yourself. And then if you say you have not sinned, you've never committed a sin, even as a believer, you're making God into a liar. Because why? Because his truth tells us different. His word teaches us different than that. So genuine believers in Jesus Christ, those who are the true Children of God by Christ, in Christ, by the grace of God, cannot truthfully say that we have no sin or that there is no sin in us. 
We cannot claim to have never committed sin. If we do that, we both deceive ourselves and we make God himself a liar because we're contradicting the clear teaching of God's word. Now, to be sure, if you are in Christ Jesus by faith, what does the Bible say about you? Paul says that you are a new creation. He says the old has passed away, the new, behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5:17. But being a new creation in Christ does not mean that we have reached or can attain sinless perfection in this life. Sin no longer reigns over you if you're a Christian. That is the clear testimony of Scripture. If you're a Christian, the power of sin over you has now been shattered. You are no longer, you will not be a slave to sin. But nevertheless, sin does not reign over you, but sin is still in you. Sin does not reign over us, but sin does still remain in us as believers. And so we who believe in Christ for salvation do not deny our sin. Quite the contrary, we humbly confess our sins. And when we do that, what, what do we, we receive his forgiveness and his cleansing from it by our God and Heavenly Father, who is what? Faithful and just to do just that. We confess our sins. We don't hide them, deny them, redefine them, or any such thing as the false teachers often would have us to do. Throughout our text, John speaks of the commission of sin in the present tense. It's always a grammar lesson in the sermon, right? But he speaks of our sin in the present tense, indicating that he has in mind not just the occasional stumbling, but the ongoing practice of it. He's talking about a settled practice of, of sin. In verse 6, John says, No one who abides in him, in Christ, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. The King James Version puts it like this, Whoever abideth in him sinneth not. In other words, whoever abides in him doesn't sin. Now that could be confused in, in a number of ways. Uh, whoever abides in him sinneth not. Whoever sinneth, whoever sins, keeps on sinning, has not seen him or known him. John Stott helpfully points out the following. He says, it is not the isolated act of sin which is envisaged, but the settled habit of it. It's not the occasional sin. It's not falling into sin. It's the habit of it, the settled habit uh, of it. So John's point throughout our text uh, is that the children of God will not be such as who continue to live in a settled disposition and habit of rebellion against God. If you're a believer, are you in a rebellion against God? No. You struggle with sin, but you are not a rebel against God. You have repented of your sins and turned to Christ by faith. Not only is such a thing not fitting for a believer to live in sin, but in many ways, John tells us in our text, it's impossible. John isn't just saying, hey, if you're a Christian, it's a good idea not to continue on in rebellion against God. He says, if you're a child of God, you won't. It's impossible, as we're going to see as we go on through the rest of our text. And so are you, a, are you a professing believer in Jesus Christ? Do you claim to be a child of God by the grace of God through faith in Christ? And the reality of that profession of faith and of your status as a child of God by God's grace, it will be evidenced by how you live. That's John's point. 
He's not saying you're saved by works. He's saying that your works are the evidence of a true and living faith. They are the evidence of one who has been born again by the Spirit of God. And so if you profess faith, if you call yourself a Christian, but are still continuing in rebellion against God by the settled habit and lifestyle of sin, what is, what is John's testimony to you? You have not yet seen him or known him. He would say you are a stranger to Christ and his grace at the moment. It doesn't have to remain that way, but we should know what we are. That's the first thing, is to know what we really are before, before God. No doubt there are countless sinners in, our, in the world today, even in many churches today, who have deceived themselves into believing that everything is well with their souls despite the utter absence of any fruit or evidence of a true and living faith in Christ. And this, this should not be so. You know, one of the things that we do uh, when we have membership interviews, it may seem like a small thing, but one of the things that we look for besides just a credible profession of faith, what, what is a credible, believable profession of faith in Christ? Well, one, it's a, it's a belief in the truth of Christ. You know, what you believe about Christ matters. If you believe in heresy, that's not the Christian faith. But also we look at a lifestyle that matches that profession of faith, not perfection, but a sincere following of Christ. And that's the reason that we do that. The flip side of living in sin is the truth that John says in verse 7, that whoever practices or literally whoever does righteousness is what? Is righteous. He's not saying that you're righteous because of what you do. He's saying what you do is the evidence that you have been reconciled to God, that you are justified and righteous in Jesus Christ. Why? He says that, that you're righteous even as he, that is Christ, is righteous. And so the true children of God, by the grace of God, are evidenced by a pattern of sincere, even if imperfect, obedience to God's commandments. And again, John's point throughout this chapter is that this is a matter of family likeness. If you are in the family of God, it will show in many ways in how you live. Now, John also in our text doesn't just talk about the Christian and the practice of sin. He also gives us some reasons why these things are so, why the, the true children of God cannot continue on in the practice of sin. Uh, he gives us logical and scriptural proofs for why the children of God in Christ are those who do not practice sin, but rather practice righteousness, and why, conversely, the children of the devil are known or evidenced by their practice of sin. As always, as Jesus says in Matthew 7.20, by, by their fruits... You will know them. In other words, the results of their life will show what they actually believe. And the first reason or proof that John gives us for these things in our text has to do with the nature of the work of Christ for our salvation. And the second reason or proof that we'll look at after that has to do with the work of the Holy Spirit in applying the work of Christ to us for our salvation. So first thing, the work of Christ the children of God and the work of Jesus Christ for our salvation. Uh, if we would just consider rightly the nature of the work of Christ for our salvation, it will become clear to us that we as his redeemed people cannot and will not continue on in sin. The first thing John mentions about the work of Christ is in verse 5 where he says this, you know, he's not telling you something new, right? He's saying, believers, 
you know that he, Christ, he appeared in order to do what? To take away sins, and in him there is no sin. You know that he appeared in order, in order to take away sins. Now, different forms of the Greek word for appeared in our text uh, occur no less than six times in 1 John 2:29 to 3, verse 10. It's a, it's a recurring theme over and over again. In fact, in verse 10, when it says, it, by this it is evident, it's a noun form of the same word. It's like, uh, you really should want to make it say apparent to give the, the connection to the word appearing. Uh, but six times, so John is, is making a point here in many ways. Uh, sometimes he talks about the appearing of Christ in, re- in reference to his second coming. We saw that last Sunday with, with verse 3, or rather verse 2. He says, we know that when he appears in the future, when Christ comes back, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. He's talking in the future tense. When Christ returns in glory, we, you who believe will be like him because you will see him as he is. But in, first, in verse 5, John is speaking of Christ's first coming, uh, that, that he appeared in the flesh in order to atone for and take away our sins by his death on the cross. Now this, this taking away of our sins has to do first and foremost with what? The forgiveness of our sins. He takes away the guilt of our sins by his death on the cross. John is talking about justification here, in, at least in, in, as part of this. And in fact, if you think about it, one of, the, one of the words in the Bible for forgive actually has the idea of something being removed and taken, taken away, uh, taken up from us. Uh, and in fact, what, what that, that points to is this. Remember the scapegoat in Leviticus chapter 16? There were two. The, the work of Christ had to be prefigured by not one, but two goats. One was slaughtered to pay, you know, as a picture of paying for the sin, but the other one had the sins of the people confessed over its head and it was driven out into the wilderness. In fact, if you were listening, uh, paying attention as Jonathan was praying, uh, leading us in prayer this morning, he read. Uh, or prayed part of Psalm 103, and it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he what? Removed our transgressions from us. Same picture. God has taken our sins, not just the guilt of our sins, but certainly that, and removed it as far from us as the east is from the west. Now that Jesus Christ came to lay down his life to take, to take away our sins, was clear from the very beginning of his public ministry. You might remember John the Baptist, when he first saw Jesus coming up to him, uh, he said this, John 1.29, Behold, the Lamb of God who does what? Who takes away, same idea, takes away the sins of, of the world. So taking away our sins is why Christ came. It's what he came to do, laying down his life for our sins on the cross as the Lamb of God to atone for our sins, is how he takes away our sins and how he has done that. But clearly John is saying much more than just taking away the guilt of our sins here when he talks about taking away our sins. Jesus came not just to take away the guilt of our sins, as important as that is, but to take away our sins. And that should not be missed. He came to rescue us from not only the guilt of our sins, but from the power of the devil and from our slavery to sin's power over us. That is every bit as much and as as important a part of your salvation and mine in Christ 
as the forgiveness of our sins is. It is part of the grace of God to us in Christ. That's why John says, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And then it says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteousness. In other words, practicing righteousness is evidence of a true and living faith in Christ. That is the most obvious evidence of, of it according to God's word. And then in verse, verse 8, John gives us a second reason regarding the work of Christ for these things, uh, the, the, the proof or reason why we can't live in sin if we have been saved by Christ. There in verse 8 he says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And here it is. The reason the Son of God appeared, past tense, talking about the first coming of Christ, the reason the Son of God appeared was to do what? Was to destroy the works of the devil. We don't often think about his, his death on the cross in those terms, but the scripture does. It should be one of the things we think about. You know, when you think about the temptation of Christ in the wilderness and Satan trying to get Jesus basically to not go to the cross, that was self-preservation on his part. That was trying to prevent his works from being destroyed. He said, you, you, know, you, don't, you don't have to do all that, Jesus. You know, I'll give you all the kingdom if you just bow down and, and serve me. Don't go through with what the Father has, has sent you to do. That's why, because Jesus came to destroy his works. That, that promise, the first promise of the gospel in the scripture, we often call it, uh, it's always Latin terms, Proto-Evangelion, Genesis 3.15, the first gospel, where in the, during, in, in the giving of the curse uh, for sin after the fall, God, God told the evil one, he's going to put enmity or strife between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between her seed and your seed. And we're, we're all thinking plural there, right? You know, the, the children of each. But then he says, singular, you know, you shall strike his heel and he will crush your head. He, not they. It's the work of Christ that was prophesied in that, in that promise, first promise of the gospel. And part of what he did in his death was crushing the serpent's head. His cross was the victory over the evil one and rescued us from his dominion. Not only did Christ come to take away sins, but he came to destroy the works of the devil. And these two things are not unrelated. We may not see the, the relation of those two things on the surface, but it's clearly the case that they are related. And it reminds me a lot of the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. Some of you were raised with that catechism, and you might have this whole paragraph memorized. I have most of it committed to memory, but I'll read it off the page to be safe. Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer one. It says, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And I'll, I'll emphasize part of the answer. The answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Here it is. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and, and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. By the same act. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit, 
assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's a big paragraph. That's, that's our only comfort in life and death. All of that, not just the forgiveness of our sins, as important as that is, everything in that paragraph is, is talking about our salvation in Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. I don't know if they based that question in part on 1 John 3, but they easily could have because that's what John is saying in our text. That's why John can say that whoever makes a practice of sinning is of what? Or whom is of the devil? Because Christ came to set his people free from the tyranny of the devil and to destroy his works, which are chiefly those of sin and misery, death and destruction. I won't belabor this point, but think about this for just a second if you've been listening to what I've been saying from the text. How many times are our sins and the practice of sin related to a, a wrong view of Christ? How important is what we you know, theologians call Christology, the, the, the biblical view of Christ's person and work? We often think, oh, theology, that's for the pastors. That's for the theological eggheads. No, theology matters. Your view of Christ matters. Your view of Christ's work for your salvation matters. And we see that because John applies it here. Many times our errors and, and sins in our practice are related to and caused by our faulty view of Christ. And many of the heresies, whether they be theological heresies or practical heresies, are really rooted in a wrong view of Christ's person and work. And so I think it's instructive for us that what does John do? To teach us the truth about how we should live the right way, he shows us Christ. You can't do that because look who Christ is. In him there's no sin. Look who Christ is and what he's done for your salvation. How he came to destroy the works of the devil. Well, that brings us to the, the second reason or, or proof that John gives us for the necessity of the children of God walking in righteousness rather than sin. And this has to do not just with the work of Christ, but with the work of the Holy Spirit for our salvation and applying the work of Christ to us in his redemption. Look at verses 9 through 10. He says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot, cannot keep sinning. In other words, he is not able to keep sinning is what John says. Why? Because he has been born of God. Cannot, in the Greek it's literally, is not able to. It cannot happen. Why? Because he has been born of God. And then he says, verse 10, by this it is evident or apparent uh, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So if you're a believer in Christ this morning, you have been born of God. What does that mean? It means, to use the words of John 3, you've been born again. And how is it that anyone is ever born again but by the work of the Holy Spirit? The new birth and its effects, according to John, are not temporary in nature. John adds that the reason why those who are born of God don't make a practice of sinning 
is because what God's seed what? Abides or remains in him. The work of the Holy Spirit in, in those who believe is not a temporary passing thing. It isn't a thing where God makes you born again one moment and then withdraws his Holy Spirit the next. It's not that kind of a work at all. What is the seed that abides in believers? That has been the subject of some disagreement among commentators, but the main point I think is clear. He's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in believers making us a new creation in Christ. And again, that is not a temporary passing thing. It is not a temporary thing. The Holy Spirit indwells and abides with God's children in Christ. Now, the scripture actually speaks of the Holy Spirit uh, in terms of being a guarantee or a deposit or even a down payment, if you can imagine not to be disrespectful to the Holy Spirit, but that's the kind of image the Bible uses of him, that he's the guarantee of the rest of our inheritance in Christ. That's a heck of a down, down payment, isn't it? God gives us his indwelling Holy Spirit to prove to us that the rest is sure to come. In Ephesians 1, verses 13 to 14, the Apostle Paul says this. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, he says, In him, that's in Christ, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, and here it is, when that happened, what happened? You were, quote, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit indwelling you as a believer, bringing you to new life in Christ, sealed you for the day of redemption. It's God, God by his Holy Spirit, marking you out as his own. In many ways, this is what baptism is a sign and seal of, of union with Christ and belonging to God in him. So the Holy Spirit seals you as God's child uh, by his indwelling work, and he's also, by indwelling you, the guarantee of your inheritance in Christ. That nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Part of that is what is because the Holy Spirit has sealed you and is the guarantee of your salvation. The abiding, the abiding work of the Holy Spirit within believers is such that we cannot keep sinning because we have been born of God. That's John's point. The new birth makes that an impossibility. In fact, part of the work of the Holy Spirit that was promised and prophesied way back in the Old Testament in the book of Jeremiah was that God would write his law on our hearts. You know, God gave the law, the Ten Commandments and such, on, on tablets of stone. And Jeremiah says, one day God's going to do one better than that. At, at, at the new covenant, at Christ's first coming, what he's going to start doing is writing that law, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, on our very hearts. The center of our being, God was going to do that. Jeremiah 31, 33 says this. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's part of the new covenant in Christ, is God taking a heart of stone and turning it into a heart of flesh, taking his law and writing it on the, on the center of our being. That's how much God's law is a part of, of us who believe. 
That's why John can say in verse 10 as he does, that by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So we who believe, we demonstrate or prove whose children we are, either children of God or children of the devil, by how we live. That's John's point. You don't make yourself a child of God by how you live. The what You live because of what you are. If God has saved you by his grace in Christ and made you his child and made you alive from the dead, being alive from the dead changes things. Being a new creation in Christ can't help but change things. And it will show and evidence itself by how we live. And so if you're a child of God by the work of Christ and, and by the work of the Holy Spirit applying Christ's work of redemption to you, John is just saying it will be evident in your practicing imperfectly but sincerely of righteousness, seeking to obey your heavenly Father's commandments sincerely again, even if not in this life perfectly. But if you don't practice righteousness, if you don't, as John even adds, it's a, it's a hint of what he's about to talk about later after this verse, if you don't love the brethren, that despite any profession of faith you may have made, you are not yet a child of God. That's what John is saying. If you're still in rebellion against God and you still hate your brethren, they're not your brethren because you have not been born of God yet. In fact, he says very bluntly that you're still children of the devil. That's the kind of two kinds of people there are in this world. You're either a child of God through faith in Christ or a child of the devil. If that describes you this morning and you know it, if, you, if even now you're, you're being convicted of your sin, your unbelief, your rebellion, your continued rebellion against God, uh, turn, repent of your sin, turn to God by faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says the one who comes to God through Christ, he will by no means cast out. If you are a believer in Christ, if you know, even this morning, if you know that you're a child of God, that you're not still in rebellion against him, that you're sincerely trying to follow Christ and have faith in him, what should you do? We should make it our aim, as, as John says in verse 3, the verse right before our text, to, to, to purify ourselves even as Christ is pure, to continue to walk more and more in newness of life, to repent of our sins, to, to try to be conformed more and more to the image of Christ, even now as we wait for Christ's return. And if that's the case, you know, many of us sometimes we go through periods of our lives as believers and we become discouraged. We, we, usually it's because of our sin, our struggle with sin, uh, what we perceive as our lack of conformity to Christ's image, the way we think. We think we should be further ahead in these things than we are. Uh, I would say take heart and be encouraged because God will work in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure, as he says in Philippians 2.13. And think about this according to our text. Because Christ came to take away your sins and to destroy the works of the devil, he will bless and prosper your works and your efforts at growing in sanctification because it's why Christ came in the first place. And that will be something that he will bless and make you succeed in until Christ returns. Because you have been born of God, his seed abides in you for that very purpose itself to the glory of God. Amen.